Excuse me while I take over before we start the show. I just want to give a quick shout out for a couple of great people. Firstly, looking for that special cake treat? Then check out what the Welsh cake lady is selling. Not just the best Welsh cakes you will ever taste. There are also subtle variations with lemon and lavender and orange and cranberry and much, much more. Most Saturdays, Kerry can be found at the Stroud Farmer's Market with special appearances at other markets. Please check thewelshcakelady.co.uk and Kerry's Facebook page for details of appearances. Don't worry if you didn't get that address, you'll find it in our show notes. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's all very well if you live in Gloucestershire and can pop along. But what about if I live elsewhere in the UK? Fear not, there is a delivery service. Again, please check out the welshcakelady.co.uk website for delivery orders and details. Well worth checking out, and for you English, a little bit of culture. And speaking of Welsh people, those of you that follow us on Twitter will occasionally see a tweet showing a stunningly mounted autograph and picture. One of my passions, and something I share, are autographs from classic horror stars. As I've said before, collecting classic autographs can be a bit hit and miss, which is why I'm so pleased to have someone I can trust 100% getting the ones I require for my collection. That person is Robert Griffiths, an AFTAL-approved dealer for many years. If you want to see a selection of his top ones for sale, all beautifully framed, pop into the first floor of the Cardiff Antique Centre. Robert and Kerry, two very special people. Please support them if you can. And now it's time for the show. Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. It's our last review show of the year. This month, our reviews include Dune, Last Night in Soho and Cry Macho. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, can we change the last one? All quality stuff, no pepper Pig reviews here. It's good to have you back, Neil, although your jokes are not much better than Jeff's. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing can scale the heights of my jokes, Phil. Enough of this nonsense. Darren, you have an announcement. Yeah, I do, thank you. Um, just want to throw this out there that sadly, uh, due to Christmas, there will be no Darren's Dash this month. However, in the um, tradition of all great BBC shows from the 80s, it will return in the new year. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to it. Just don't tell Jeff your horror selections in advance. We are still getting mail about Malignant. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, I'm Jeff. Hi, my name is Graham. Hi, my name is Neil. I'm Phil, and when I'm not on At The Flicks, you can find out more about my film tastes on my blog, philthebearblog at wordpress.com. Hi, I'm Darren. Other than being on At The Flicks, you can follow me on Twitter at DazzleLovesMovie. And you can also read my blogs at halfguarded.com, including my upcoming Top 11 Movies of 2021. Now, before we go on, I have to say, as Graham made me put it in my contract, (laughs) welcome back to the show, Neil, and I hope you are feeling better. 
Thank you, Jeff. And for the flowers and the empty box of chocolates. <laughs> Hang on a minute. That box was unopened when I handed it to Graham to deliver. Uh, <laughs> all that sugar would not have been good for him. I sacrificed my diet for you, Neil. There you go. <laughs> on more than one occasion. <laughs> um, any, anyway, as we're all being open and honest, I will admit that we did try to get a replacement for you last month, Neil. There are a couple of candidates. The best one give a terrific interview, and then Graham asked him to give a small presentation about the At The Flicks internet setup, and it went wrong from that point. Luckily, we recorded the interview so you can hear what happened. Yesterday I went, uh, as, as we all must, uh, 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 to, to Peppa Pig World. I was, well, it's, it's fact, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it, and Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. You sure that isn't Neil from an earlier show? <laughs> no, I grant you it's similar, Phil, and many people have said Neil does sound like Bodger Johnson. Oh, he really? even has the same accent. Really? Did we have another candidate as well? Indeed we did, Graham. Listener Frank applied. Oh, but when he realised we had no women on the review team, he withdrew his application. <laughs> Nothing to do with me, Frank. I'm still going to see you over Christmas. Are we actually going to do a quiz this month or just carry on with this nonsense? <laughs> yeah, good point, Darren, good point. Now, normally at this point in the show, we would give out the answers to anything unanswered from last month's quiz. However, oh last God, month, it proved there was a born genius in the team. So there's no need for that. Great quiz last month, Darren. <laughs> I'm still doing a lap of honour around the bedroom. Yeah, and um, I'm already regretting it. <laughs> Not us. now this month we return to the simple format of five questions although i have taken darren's lead and built the questions around one of this month's reviews can you guess what it is yet phil do you feel lucky (laughs) yeah okay then are we ready for the quiz so question one clint eastwood made two companion piece films about war in the pacific one was flags of my father's what was the Oof, no messing about Ajima, there. Damn it. Yeah, Phil, straight in. Number two. Despite all you say, you're a bit of a Clint I, denier. I told you, I, I like his films, but uh, not the last dozen or so. <laughs> okay, question two. What was Clint Eastwood's first film as director? Ooh. Play Misty for me? Two nil to Phil. Oh, damn it. What was the first film as director in which Clint... Does not appear, although he did do a brief Hitchcock-like appearance. Mm, Midnight in the Garden Mid- of Good and Evil. Million, million Dollar Baby? No, he was in that, wasn't he? He's in yeah. that. Anybody? Is it not my one, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? Nope. You're, no. Nope. Anybody? It's kind of stumped. Oh, I, th- I thought your audio feed had cut, Graham. Um, <laughs> Darren? Uh, I can't think, to be honest. Okay, that goes to our listeners. So, that's still 2-0 to Phil. Question four. Clint Eastwood once starred in the film version of a great spy book by a fantastic Welsh author called Craig Thomas. What was the name of the film? Agus Anxion. Not where he goes there. No, that was Trevelyan. He was American. Where he goes there was Higgins, wasn't it? Uh, That was Alistair MacLean. MacLean, right. Spy movie? Yes. Firefox? Correct. Darren wins. <laughs> Two under Darren there. Well done. Oh, Phil still winning. <laughs> so it's all down to this last question. It's a, it's a simple format, Jeff. You shouldn't get confused. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to veer slightly off from Clint now for this last one. 
one of the actors in the classic Thank God It's Friday went on in their career to be nominated for three Oscars. Jeff can Goldblum. You, can you name that performer? Jeff Goldblum. And Graham's wrong. <laughs> okay. Nominated but not won? No. Wasn't it one of the young girls was very, very famous? Anybody? Neil, is your audio feed cut? <laughs> no, just trying to um, not think of that film. Okay. Darren? I've no idea. Okay, we'll put that to listeners. Does yeah. this mean that if Jeff's going to continue doing the quiz, we've all got to actually watch this bloody film? <laughs> <laughs> but you'd never be able to take part because you'd have blown your brains out after you watched it. <laughs> well... Phil wins. Well Yay! done, Phil. Who would have thought it? A Clint Eastwood quiz. Yeah, 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 I know. Shocked. Okay, thanks, Jeff, for that one. Um, I think. Okay, so let's start the review section with Clint Eastwood's latest, Cry Macho. You owe me, Mike. You gave me your word. And that used to mean something. My son, Rafael, he's in trouble. I want to get him out of Mexico. You want me to go down there and kidnap him? Please, just get him back up here. Just you? Just me. You used to be strong. Natural. I used to be a lot of things. But I'm not now. His name is Macho. Like me? Very strong rooster. Whatever. What's wrong with that? Nothing. I wants to name this cock Macho. <laughs> it's okay by me. The magnificent Clint Eastwood, now 91, directs and stars in Cry Macho, a Western drama. Set in 1980, Mike Milo, Clint Eastwood, is a retired rodeo rider whose life has had more than its share of ups and downs. His former boss, Howard, played by singer-turned-actor Dwight Yoakam, hires him back for an unusual job. Howard's teenage son, Raffo, played by Eduardo Minnet, lives in Mexico City with his party-loving mother. He wants Mike to go to Mexico and persuade Raffo to come back and spend time with his father. After some persuasion, Raffo agrees to travel back to America with Mike. However, his mother, Lita, has other ideas and send her bodyguards to stop the duo, by whatever means necessary. The latest Clint appears to be an elegy to Americana, road movies and old age. Now, there's only one person I can go to for this. <laughs> Phil, has Clint created another classic? I honestly cannot believe you've come into me first on this one after our disagreements <laughs> over text message about this film. I know I just won the quiz, but come on. Um, <laughs> no, no one about it. Honestly, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. And then after that, I can only imagine it's going to get better because anything's better than what I think of this film. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I honestly thought this film is monumental levels of terrible. It is catastrophically <gasps> bad. Right, so I'm going to quote the text that I sent Jeff after I came out of the film. <laughs> Watched Cry Macho at the cinema tonight. About halfway through, I had to check my ticket to make sure it didn't say world's shittest film by a bunch of amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> I cried myself to sleep that night, listen. <laughs> 
it's not starting well. <laughs> so, I mean, okay. So what what did I dislike? Well, okay. Clint, who Jeff has kindly pointed out is 91 years old, is apparently playing a 50-year-old, I think, because <laughs> it's never properly sort of told. But he is clearly meant to be playing somebody who's about 40, 50 years younger than himself. And it's really, really easy to like suspend your disbelief when he winces as he lowers himself into a chair and <laughs> creaks around. And obviously they they have to sort of put into the plot about him breaking his back to try and cover this horrendous, like physical difficulty that he has. So prepare yourself for that massive level of suspension of belief there. Then, of course, he has to have a love interest who is 39 years younger than him. <laughs> I find this slightly queasy at the age of 40 because that's just weird. The chemistry, as you can imagine, is off the charts. I mean, <laughs> there's so much buzz between the two. This is proper old-fashioned Hollywood here. The director casting himself as the love interest of someone 39 years younger than himself. The opening setup of the film is so monumentally clumsy. I thought that maybe they came up with it 10 minutes before they filmed it. I mean, Jeff's alluded to the fact that the guy who was an ex-singer turned actor maybe shouldn't have bothered. Um, <laughs> so what happens is, is Clint gets the sack in what is the biggest exposition-filled speech where they tell us all about his character so we never have to worry about who exactly his <laughs> character is. And then, just in case you weren't listening, he's got some photos and newspaper clippings on the wall, the vain bastard. So we can also find out just in case, you know, get a bit of a reiteration. Excuse me, Phil. Yeah. I've got news clippings framed of myself. <laughs> Have you? Mm, you vain bastard. And then, <laughs> and then you get a one year later title card. And the guy who literally we've just watched say how unreliable he is and how he can't be trusted and how he's sucking him because he's useless. It's like, do you want a job, mate? <laughs> I really trust you to go and get my son from Mexico. That stuff I said about you being complete waste of space. Don't worry about that. Can you do this for me? Uh, uh, hang on a minute. That's then explained later on because other people had done that run and failed. Whereas the mighty Clint does it. <laughs> other people had done that run and failed. So he went to the guy he just sacked because he's rubbish and untru untrustworthy. Because he knew spiritually he was the right person to undertake this journey. Okay, so then you also mentioned about the bodyguards who would stop at nothing in the least convincing series of confrontations since the last kitten video you watched on YouTube. <laughs> Clint Eastwood, the 91-year-old, scares the bodyguards to not fighting him and taking the sun away from him. I mean, they could have blew on him and he would have fallen over. Um, <laughs> then, of course, the, the boy's mother fancies him. You know, what planet are we on at this point? Because she's even younger than the woman who he's supposed to have a love interest <laughs> I, with. I, I'm yeah. sorry, it takes more than a blowjob to knock Clint over. <laughs> <laughs> then, and I will, this is the only bit I'm going to concede on. There's a tiny, decent, tiny bit in the middle where the boy bonds with the old man who's now his surrogate father. But, of course, just to ruin it, the surrogate father's playing Dr. Doolittle and, like, fixing animals. What the hell's going on at this point? <laughs> and the script is so bad that just in case you were, like, you know, falling asleep, because that's completely fair, 
in the last five minutes of the film, Clint's t- character literally just turns to the boy and says, by the way, this is exactly what this film's about, just in case you, you know, could be bothered <laughs> watching the previous 90 minutes. And Jeff, before you start, Clint has made some amazing films. I do like Clint Eastwood's films. But everything he's done since American Sniper in 2014 has been dire. In summation, I'm pretty confident this is the worst film I've seen this year. (gasps) And if not, it's certainly the biggest fall from grace for such a big name. Have fun, guys. I'll get my coat. I, I, I can't add anything to that, Graham. So yeah, I'm I'm sorry, guys. I didn't get to see this. Jeff gave me a glowing review, and I'm not thinking I could handle the emotional trauma of what Clint was going through. Even though Jeff told me it was a possible contender, a strong his, contender, strong contender for his film of the year. I I delayed too long and missed the limited cinema release here in Cheltenham. So I'm going to pass on. Is, I'm is that because twelve people showed up to watch it and it lasted a week? <laughs> Twelve A. That's over to well, you, Neil. Well, I saw it, Graham, and I'm envious of you. <laughs> I just sat waiting for something to happen that wasn't predictable or obvious, and actually, nothing does. It's the script, as Phil has said, is terrible. Even Eastwood can't rescue it. A poor Eduardo Minette playing the teenage he has to go and rescue. It's rather trampled by banality. Hmm? Neil. You know, since you left hospital, you still got to keep taking those meds, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. And at 91 years old, as, as Phyllis has said as well, becomes the love interest of 52-year-old Natalia Traven. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> at one point, when asked to look at an old, sick family pet, Eastwood turns to Manette and says, I can't cure old. So why am I watching this? It's just <laughs> dull. There's a reason the script has been knocking around for 40-odd years. And Clint Eastwood is lead, director, producer, and composer of additional music. Nobody wanted this movie. Or or was Clint just trying to cure his own old age? Sorry, I just just had to get that out there. Worst movie of the month by far. No, nobody felt they could get up to what was required of this material. And mm. Clint understood the Write material. the theme tune, sing uh, the theme no, tune. No. <laughs> I, I'm sure Darren will not agree with any of you and he will be spot on perfect. Darren. Yeah, okay. So I know it's already been said, but let's get this out of the way. Clint Eastwood scoring with hot younger women like the Lady Crime Lord is just really, really creepy. Just cut it out, Clint. You you were doing stuff like this in the mule when he had the threesome with the two two women. You know, just, just cut it out. It's really and creepy. I love that you, as well. You've got it. Yeah, yeah, I bet you did. Living living by care. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I mean the thing. The thing is, I, I went into this. I really wanted to love this film because been a, a Clint Eastwood fan all my life. He's one of my favorite actors. He's been in some of my favorite films, film characters, and I really want him to go out like John Wayne does in the Shooters by having that sort of one great film that ends his career, or that Rob, Robert Redford his last film. You know that that was a, a really old man the gun. Old man in the gun. That's that's yeah. one, yeah. Which were like sort of like films where you have these aging legends going out with sort of recognizing that they were old, but going out with some sort of dignity. You you know, and and this 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 wasn't Clint wasn't good in this. He he sounded really laboured, 
really tired. And then, but then there would be a few other times when in, in his performance, there'd just be that you just get little bits of that Eastwood charm and that little glint in his eyes. So I'm guessing it just depended on, on what sort how much energy he had on those two particular days when you know when he was filming it, like you know, if it was maybe a good day or not. With the dried frog pills he was on. Yeah, and and yeah, speak to someone who knows. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's been said said already about about all the really weird story beats. I mean, the, the one thing that got me was one minute that the idea was that he was going to try and save this young lad from this really dangerous household, and then halfway through it turns out that he's actually been sent there because the kid's been used as a pawn uh, between his two parents. Um, but then Clint still delivers the, the you know the kid to his father at the end, who you know greets him with open arms. It was just like you know just all these weird sort of things that you know this like these plot twists that never really went anywhere. And like you know when he first met the mommy, she claimed that the kid was out of control and and wild. And then when you meet him, it's just this like really naive kid that with with butter that won't melt in his mouth. He you know he just it was just all over the place. It was everyone making it as we went along. And there were bits I did like about it. I, I I actually did like the road movie element. I thought the scenery looked really lush, and some of the little sort of scenarios that you know were sort of okay. But the the whole thing from the story to the directing just felt really really clumsy. And and also I've got to say as well, you had the the most ineffectual villains um, tracking them down than I've ever seen. Every time I caught up with them, I mean, they were like something from a uh, Abbott and Costello movie. They were just totally useless. You know, you've got <laughs> this old man with a kid, and every time they caught up with him, they just managed to like, trip up over themselves. It was just, oh, God. Like, oh, was... no, it's a 91-year-old man. Yeah, and, and at the end, he's just sort of catch him up, and there's no showdown. You just, they just start to, you know, they get defeated by the chicken and everything. It's just awful. Those, <laughs> those all the cliches. And, and I have to say as well, because sometimes in Eastwood films, there's a really saccharine tone to his movies. And, and while I think there was a bit of a charm in, in this film, it just, as you're watching it, you, you couldn't help but think, you, you're remembering what his career was as opposed to him going out on, on a high. And, and I, I just thought, it, it was just sad. It had its moments. It was really depressing by, by the end. of it. It, it wasn't the way I want Clint Eastwood to, to go out. And and to be honest, if, if Clint Eastwood does do a, do a film which is about his final one. I really hope he doesn't direct it. Part of the problem is he's doing like a film a year constantly. I would like it if he basically handed everything over to someone to make him, to come up with a story that makes him look good, a director that makes him look good and end it like that. But that's, that's just me. Like Gran Torino. Gran Torino would have been the, the perfect one to, to end on. I mean, I have to say I did mm. like The Mule. I did enjoy that one, but but Gran Torino to me that was everything that was great about Clint Eastwood. You know, Gran Torino would have been the perfect way to to end his acting career, in my opinion. And you're all missing out Trouble with the Curve, which is a marvelous Howard Hawksian type comedy that he did um, about ten years ago, which is fantastic. As is this. There's a reason why I've gone last as an effective counterpoint to everything I've heard, and and quite honestly, I'm upset. <laughs> I, I, oh, good. I, I'm, I'm upset <laughs> by what is uh, a film that is a culmination of a legend's career. I'm just choking up. Actually, <laughs> do, do, should we go to the next film? Uh, no. 
Actually, lads, now it's time for my real review, which isn't posted in the script. Now, oh, good. I really wanted to like this film, and I was hoping <laughs> for something like, as Darren just said, the excellent mule from a few years back, the which was a yeah yeah but there we go uh you like blade runner 2049 so i i think everybody did jeff no i didn't everybody that counts (laughs) and and clint has spent a lot on films that are about a meditation of old age and possible second chances and i'm sure phil will love that even i can't get around this on this one (laughs) and as much as i love eastwood he's simply too old to play this part and at times it is embarrassing as has been said by the others he made this film too late in his career i think if he'd done this a decade ago it would have been just about right although robert duval almost made played the part even before that and i think that would have been a great version even the one arnie was trying to do he tried to make it at one point but i think clint about 10 15 years ago would have been perfect at clint's current age i worried every time he lay down to take a nap that he might not wake up (laughs) (laughs) It was quite clear to all that he was too old for this mission. I mean, in the beginning, his hands are shaking terribly yeah. in many of the scenes. And as for the first woman who wanted to bed him, well, I hope she had a good supply of Viagra and a resuscitation <laughs> kit. Um, that's clearly in front of the camera. Let's talk about behind the camera. It is better, but it also misses a trick. I mean, essentially, what Cry Macho is, is a Shangri-La story. It's a mythical place, the village where they come to in the centre of the film where dreams and hopes come true. Now, unfortunately, Clint and his team have developed over the years a naturalistic style using long scenes and a particular type of cinematography. This plays really well in the early part of this film, and I did quite get into that. But it should have shifted, and it should have become more heightened and brighter when they arrive in the village. They needed to make this film a fairy tale, but it misses that aspect of the story. But then the technical aspects aren't helped by many of the performances being so poor. None more so than Dwight Yoakam. I mean, Dwight, (laughs) what the bloody hell are you doing, mate? Go back to singing. (laughs) If that part had been beefed up and played by somebody, say, like Christopher Walken, you could have had something there and you could have really bought into that. Cowboys don't make great actors, unfortunately. And like so much, this is a film about dreams. And it's just a missed opportunity. And I was so disappointed when I saw it, although I was never going to admit that to Phil at the time. (laughs) I was going to say, Jeff's acting over the last, I don't know how many weeks it was since I sent that text to him. (laughs) Jeff's acting since I sent that text to him is better than anything in this film. Because Jeff wound me up so many times about how great this film was when it's clearly a massive pile of shit. He phoned me after he'd seen it as a Dumbledore, Graham. It's a pile of shit. <laughs> Phil, Phil he's, he's had a lifetime of uh, acting now like that. Yeah. But this isn't the first time that Clint has done one of these sort of fables that have gone wrong. 40 years ago, he did Bronco Billy. Yeah, and Bronco yeah. Billy is a clever idea mm. and it's poorly executed and that's why it was one of his box office flops. It just doesn't work. He can't do that sort of fantasy. And I'll go back to classic Clint, Dirty Harry. In Magnum Force he says a man has to know his limitations and I'm <laughs> sorry Clint this time around you didn't. Oh, and it breaks my heart to say <laughs> that. 
absurd. But guess the big question is, will this be Clint Eastwood's last movie? Only time will tell. Chromacho is currently showing in cinemas still around the world on and on HBO Max over in America. Let's turn all epic for our next film, Dune. We are House Atreides. There is no call. We do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts. This is my Dune. Kill them all. God in heaven. Get everything with guns off the ground. Go! This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. Let's fight like demons. Frank Herbert's seminal novel Dune has been filmed before and is also an inspiration to many filmmakers, George Lucas in the original Star Wars. This time around, director Denis Villeneuve brings his vision to this epic tale, or rather half of it as this is Dune Part 1. Set many years in the future in a distant galaxy, humanity is spread over many worlds and categorised into various houses ruled over by the Emperor Shaddam IV. The ultimate prize given out by the Emperor is control of the planet Arrakis, or, as it is otherwise known, Dune. Dune is the only known place where spice can be obtained. Spice extends life and makes long-distance space travel possible. The evil House Harkonnen had control of the planet until the Emperor decided it must be handed over to House Atreides. Duke Leto Atreides, Oscar Isaac, takes control of the planet along with his family and army, unaware that he is about to fulfil an ancient prophecy. Not for him, but for his son Paul, Timothy Chalamet. Graham, I know you're a fan of the book. Were you disappointed when you realised it was only half the story? Not in the slightest. For me, it's very hard to be objective about this film. I mean, I first read this when I was was about 15 years old and thought at the time... Hang hang on, it wasn't written then. (laughs) Came out in 1966, 65. 65, right, okay. Of course I went... Thank you. I read the book when I was 15 and thought at the time that this would be unfilmable. Then, much later, I saw the 1984 David Lynch effort and realised it probably was unfilmable. (laughs) (laughs) Mind you, I thought the same about The Lord of the Rings, and how wrong was I about that? Well, it seems I'm wrong again. Denny Villeneuve's vision is a near-perfect translation to the big screen. When I read Dune back in 1972-ish, There were a number of things that struck me as a fledgling sci-fi reader. Watching Star Trek and Doctor Who on TV didn't prepare me for the complexity and depth of this book. The strangeness of the Dune universe with no computers, a feudal house system with lords and barons, a strange religion, scheming space witches, personal shields and secret battle languages, high tech in a medieval setting, if you like. Or what's your Johnson's government? (laughs) 
<laughs> I was stunned by this book. Uh, the film brought everything I loved about this book and put it up on the big screen, then increased the scale tenfold and turned the action scenes up to 11. The cinematography is breathtaking and the music is phenomenal. It's a sonic experience from the wailing single female voices to the specially created instruments and the massive choral crescendos. The pacing and dialogue is laser beam accurate and razor sharp. At no point did any of the important pieces of the book get missed. The honour of the House of Trades, the brutality and depravity of House Harkonnen, the nobility and inventiveness of the Fremen, all of it's on screen. This movie sweeps in scale from the vastness of the Guild Highliners and action set pieces to the fine detail of the little desert mouse and the prescient foreshadowing of the beetle in Paul's dream with the beetle on Duncan's hand at the ecological testing station. For people who've read the book, this film is pure gold. It's spice. I loved every minute of the film. I cannot wait for the second part. I've already ordered the Blu-ray steelbook, and I'm looking forward to seeing all the deleted scenes and making of stuff. If you haven't read the book, please see this film. And if you have read the book, you've already seen it, and you know how good it is. This is definitely one of my top five films of the year, and this is why I go to the cinema for stuff like this. It was phenomenal. Will you please stop sitting on the fence? And you're <laughs> I can't be objective. It was everything I wanted. I couldn't believe how good I, th- I had one of those moments when I went in and it was basically, please don't mess this up. Please don't mess this up. <laughs> and then it just started. And I thought, Oh God. And the Sardaukar of voices and that throat speaking and everything was just brilliant. Darren, please bring us back to normality. <laughs> okay. So, so a bit, I just want to put out there that I was never an actual massive fan of the book. It was just, you know, maybe it's, and it's often it's a book that I think I should probably reread at some point, which I very rarely do because maybe it's that I read it in my early twenties and I just didn't get it. It just came across as just like a fantasy book to me. I I, I never really got, you know, why people raved about it so, so so much, but that that's by the by. Basically, I don't really have any sort of real emotional investment in this. I went to see this in IMAX and I am so glad that I paid the extra out because this movie was absolutely beautiful. Even as epic as it looked in the trailers, I was dubious about an entire film being set in a a really sandy environment. But the, the way it was shot and that haunting music, it was just amazing. It just looked so... I don't know, just full of life. You know, even though it was in a dusky, you know, desert, it just seemed absolutely full of life. And the moment that those sandworms appeared, I I would put that with one of the big awe-inspiring moments of, say, Jurassic Park, when you first see the, um, you know, the, the, the Brontosaurus. I, I was just absolutely amazed because even if you you know if you don't know much about June, the, the one thing you do, you will know is the sandworms. You know, you want to see what they look like, and they looked absolutely amazing, but also subtle. And and, it, and it's it's weird if you compare this film to the uh, you know the um, 
you know, the, the, the other one, which is absolutely so bad, it's um, it, it's good. It, it's so bad, it's entertaining, I should say. Whoa, you see, whoa, whoa. Oh, the standard, you mean the David Lynch version? You're David Lynch about, one, yeah. yeah. Hmm. When, when you see the, um, you know, what they were like in, in that one and how in this one, they managed to make them look ginormous. You know, it's it's absolutely amazing. Just a wonderful moment, and I think as well this film that I really liked is it just did such a splendid job of world building because there are so many complicated, diverse elements in Dune with all the uh, you know the, the politics and the different cultures and the clan, and then the sort of you've got the mysticism in, in that. And this film took its time with all those elements eased you into it very much like i think you know what the uh, the first season of game of thrones did and game of thrones had an entire like season to do that june had like you know just sort of like two and a half hours and it did it so well it really took its time i know there's a lot of sort of critics have, have commented on the pace of it and and saying it well you know it was too slow i, I never felt that because all the all the while, while this film was going on even when it was slow you were learning something important about these worlds, about these cultures. And I, I now just was like intrigued the, the whole time. The thing about it as well is this film looked really alien. In certain, you know, the, the, sort yes. of, you know, the, the architecture, mm. the costumes, but it also felt like it didn't feel so alien that you were sort of like, that you couldn't relate to it. It felt like the sort of some of the cultures we've had in our, our past as well, and when it actually got to the uh, the action scenes, those action scenes really paid off. Battle scenes were were massive and 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 original. And I know that it's on HBO Max and everything, but and I know that you, you know you shouldn't say you know you should go to the cinema because not everyone feels able to at the moment. But I think it is really one that if you see on the on the big screen, it really does pay off and and i'm really looking forward to the second part because i don't get quite what the actual what the theme or the, the meaning of this film is I, I can see there's kind of like a christ type analogy maybe going on here but i'm really looking forward to, to the second part i think this one will explain to me what dune is really all about and and why people have such a uh, in a thing for the book but yeah i think this is a, a just absolutely a splendid movie so now i've always said Denis Villeneuve is a very poor director. <laughs> and he's certainly not an emotional director. And I think if you check back on previous recordings, guys, I've always said he'd be well suited to the Dune movie because it focuses on intellect and not emotion. Would you believe it? It's proven me correct. The <laughs> stunning visual interpretation of the first half of the sprawling novel is vindication of everything I've said. Yet again, I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> It's a booster shot, not a booster shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On planet Jeff, this all makes sense. Now, I've got to be honest, the, the Lynch version is better. Oh, you are kidding. The Lynch version is better, apart from the ending. Oh, where he gets it to rain and kills all the worms. Yeah, you really thought that went through, David, didn't you? <laughs> the campier elements of the Lynch version are toned down and replaced, really, what Villeneuve has done is replaced the, that with comments on our society. I mean, for example, you could look at it as a fight for fuel, larger nations controlling smaller ones, and, of course, populism. It also references our colonial past, swords replacing blasters in this, which is very different to the way that Lynch approached this. 
what Herbert always put at the centre of Dune is the theme of not following leaders blindly and the games that they then play. And that's constant throughout this. And what I really liked about that is the way that, as the film developed, Paul has his dreams and his visions of the jihad that he is going to cause. And because it works in this intellectual, not emotional way, it's absolutely enthralling and played to perfection by a great cast. They rise above what could have been just ciphers. And I think the best performance for me was um, Jason uh, Momoa as Duncan Idaho. But then, you know, if this does become a film series, let's be honest, he's quids in, isn't he? Um, so technically, I th- I think that this is certainly the best. Well, this is the only film that Villeneuve has done that's above average. Um, <laughs> he has, and clearly has a love of the novel because he's captured things in this. The Thopters, everything I thought of what the Thopters would look like when I read the book mm. uh, is in the film. What I love about movies like this is when you get really great science fiction films, all joking aside, you can live in that screen and in those worlds. And I think he's done that. And it's backed by a powerhouse Hans Zimmer score. I mean, if you think of this in the Bond film, what a year Zimmer's having. So in short, summing it up, I can't wait for part two. It's really good. Oh, for me, this film was a just pure joy. Everything's about spot on. I, I, I've not read the books. I have seen the original many, many years ago, so I had little idea what was supposed to be going on. But this is just so easy to follow. The politics is explained extremely well. The characters are drawn out. The houses are distinguishable. And their differing event agendas fleshed out. It was just sad it ended. At 2 hours 35, it didn't feel long at all. Visually stunning, as we can all agree. Beautiful even, on a vast scale that I adored. Cinematography by Greg Fraser, who did uh, Rogue One, Zero Tart 30, and is doing next year's Batman. He's gorgeous. Weirdly, for such an eagerly anticipated film, it felt intimate, with the characters not getting lost in the scale of the production. Credit must go to, of course, the acting talent. Timothy Chalamet in particular, so much riding on that young man's shoulders and he passed with flying colours. Actually, I disagree with you on that. I felt Kyle MacLachlan in the original Dune was much better than Chalamet. Jolly good. Thanks for interrupting my review. (laughs) I'm there just to point out to you that you're wrong. Carry on. (laughs) The Hanselmer score is, well, excellent. Everything just comes together so well. Denis Villeneuve managed to get as much of Harakis filming as possible in a Jordanian desert, the Valley of the Moon, to be specific, rather than just using green screen. Whether we can see the difference, who cares? Roll on part two. Well, everybody's pleased with it so far, then. it's only one person left to go. <laughs> Don't panic. I'm, I'm, I'm towing the party line on this one. So, <laughs> I, I, so this is interesting. So a couple of you obviously got a love for the book. As prep for the film, when they announced it a long time ago, I reread the book because I'd only read it as a teenager. And I also watched the, the Lynch film in the cinema a few weeks before this came out. And I hadn't done either of those things for a really, really long time. And I have to say, I don't love either of them. Like, I'm, I am a big science fiction sort of reader, and I've never truly loved the, the Dune book. But And the David Lynch film as much to Jeff will hate this, I think it's a bit of a mess, especially in the latter parts. Well, um, only the raining on a racket's, Phil, surely. That, the, the <laughs> good. 
yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm just not going to get into that, Jeff. I just don't think the film's that great. Um, so for me, what I was nervous about, you all sort of talk, you know, Graham, you talk about being nervous about is he going to bring this vision to, to life? For me, it's about the fact that I love Denis Villeneuve films, you know, Blade Runner 2049, and a completely unemotional director who did Arrival. Honestly, Jeff, what films did you watch? Uh, no, um, no. Yeah, I, I watched Arrival. And let me just say on that, that woman at the end was just a, a total wet blanket, the way that... <laughs> oh, she, God. No, no. film <laughs> you watching, Jeff? I was watching um, Arrival where she allowed her daughter to die. Carry on, Phil. Right. Okay. So anyway, this for me actually is back when I sat down for Fellowship of the Ring, I think was that 2001. And I was so nervous. What you described, Graham, about how you felt about this film. No, I was exactly the same yeah. at Lord of the Rings because my wife turned to me about 10 minutes in. And she said, it's all right. You can breathe now. <laughs> <laughs> so when when I was sat for Fellowship of the Ring, that how you described it is exactly kind of how I felt then. So I didn't have that because of the book, but I had that because I think Denis Villeneuve is really, really good at this science fiction films. And I have to say, I just agree with you all. He's absolutely nailed it. And you've all sort of talked about the things you like, and I'll try not to repeat it, but there was kind of three things that I wanted to talk about that I loved about this. So the first is the script. Now, I don't love the book because I think the book's got some really odd stuff in it. Um, and it is hugely complicated as well. So that kind of comes back to this, is it filmable? So John Spates, I think you pronounce his name, Denis Villeneuve and Eric Roth wrote this script. And what they've been able to do is they've successfully been able to give you enough information on each key film without delving so deep that you kind of fall down this rabbit hole of lore that the book saga contains. And they've given you enough information so you understand the political machinations, the friendships between characters, the betrayals, the frankly insane Benny Gesserit religion, which is one of the things I really just don't love in the book. But they don't go so deep that it makes it non-mainstream. There's not bits in it that put you off. So they've kind of successfully navigated this line where Fans of the book, like Graham, are really, really happy and satisfied because they get all these little sort of moments in there. But also newcomers who haven't read the book and aren't sort of as aware, you know, are really happy. And you know, I think the bedrock of the success is all there in that amazing sort of tightrope walk that they've done with the script. The second thing I want to talk about is the scale and the grandeur. So I think you've all talked about this, but everything here is huge. It's not just the sandworms. The score is massive. Like I remember a bit sat in the cinema, the opening bit with Hans Zimmer's score, where you've got the the woman kind of screaming. Yeah, almost. Whatever it is on the soundtrack. It's like... It, like if you weren't awake when when you like sort of went into the cinema, that opening kind of moment is like kind of like rings you to attention. And the imagery is just a huge, massive scale. So the vast landscape of Arrakis, but also um, the Atreides home planet as well is featured. The ships, the buildings, everything there is just vast, and it just feels so kind of important and powerful, and kind of just grabs you by the lapels and sort of demands your attention. Then there's the cast. And I don't want to rattle off all the names. There's so many of them and they're all so, so good. It's a two and a half hour film. 
and he he takes his time and he builds it and all these characters are believable and you kind of start to like them and you you want to see more like i would have been happy if this was three hours long or three and a half hours long don't push it phil (laughs) i did but i wanted to see more of um the doctor and about why you know about his reasons for you know, betrayal. And I wanted to see more of Jason Momoa, who was, a, I just thought was brilliant. I actually agree with you on something, Jeff. Um, <laughs> and Timothy Chalamet was, was really, really great. So anyway, yeah, everyone said the same thing. It's stunning. Watch it wherever you can. Well, there we go. I mean, this is unusual. You know, a review we all agree on and about a Denny Villeneuve film as well. So, we would recommend that you see Dune on the biggest screen you possibly can. And it's currently on cinemas, proved to be a hit. Uh, I think it's on HBO Max in America and out on physical media with us in January. But let's move on. From one highly acclaimed filmmaker to another as we review Edgar Wright's latest, Last Night in Soho. I can live any place in any time I'd live here in London. In the 60s, last night, I saw something in my dreams. There was a girl. And you are? Sandy. I got this kind of gift. I can see people, places, things others can't. This is the closest most people ever get to their dreams. They're not just dreams. I don't want to do this. You think you can just walk away? It really happened. What did you see? Do you believe in ghosts? I want to report a murder. You witnessed the murder last night, but you believe this was a vision from the past. The guy that killed her is still out there. I have to stop him. Ellie Turner, New Zealand actress Thomasin Mackenzie, lives a quiet life in Cornwall and has dreams of becoming a fashion designer. Ellie's mother killed herself years ago. However, Ellie, who is able to see such thing, occasionally gets comforting sightings of her mother's ghost. She gets her big break when she's accepted into the London College of Fashion. The school is great. Her roommates and friends, less so. Unable to take it any longer, Ellie rents a bedsit from an elderly Alexandra Collins, Diana Rigg, and moves out of the dorm. In her new home, Ellie starts having very vivid dreams where she is transported back to the London of the 1960s and becomes linked to a vibrant young woman called Sandy, Anya Taylor-Joy. Over time, the dreams get darker and Ellie starts to question whether they are in fact dreams or a past coming back to life because of her special abilities. Neil, this must have been a struggle for you. I know you're a a big Edgar Wright fan. However, this is still a horror film. Did you start having strange dreams after watching it? No. Um, I was slightly nervous, Graham, but without reason to be. I don't think it's one of those standard modern horror crappy horror films that I hate so much. It's part commentary on the sleaze of London's West End, part psychological thriller, part a metaphor on mental health. And there's so much more to it. Before so I you start, you check every box there, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I, thank you. I, before I start, I have to say this film has remained with me in the days since I saw it. I'm still thinking about it. It's Soho was a strange place in the 60s. 
and for a square mile boundaried as it is by Regent Street, Oxford Street, Charing Cross Road and Shaftesbury Avenue. And with all the new money from a burgeoning 60s advertising industry, Fleet Street management, the construction firms rebuilding London after the war, and so many suits besides with cash in their pocket, Late Night Soho is a unique place and time. And thank you, Mr. Edgar Wright, for bringing it all to the screen in all its cesspit notoriety down which so many young women's dreams were flushed. Can I Dead- just, sorry, Neil, to cut in on there, you've not mentioned the craze. Well, they were East End for a start, but yes, they did they had, venture they, into the Soho. They, they had a, quite a uh, uh, long fingers into Soho at that. Yeah, time. sure, they did. Yes, I mean everybody did. I mean it, it, it didn't have to be just the Greys and and of course the Vice Squad. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, Mum's dead, eh? That's the usual reason, says Matt Smith glibly at one point. No wonder the post-war male baby boomers hark back to that time. <laughs> So first, Thomas and Mackenzie plays Ellie and Anya Taylor-Joy, who plays Sadie, are wonderful. The direction's spot on and Matt Smith can do seriously creepy when he wants to. Two, Edgar Wright is a genius. There's two moments early on that still make me smile. Sandy and Ellie enter the Café de Paris with Ellie reflected in the mirror. Does Edgar Wright demand special effects? No, we don't have the money. No mirror, just Ellie slightly out of focus and use the Weasley twins from Harry Potter. Choreograph it. It's fine. And it was. Secondly, have Sandy and Ellie... Can you explain that, Neil? Because that went over my head, please. There's the, the two of them are walking together. Yeah. And one on and Ellie is in the mirror image because of this huge mirror. Actually, it wasn't. It was just a blank space, and they choreographed the two two of them walking in, and the hat check person comes in and takes uh, Sandy's coat at the same time as the as the mirror image takes Ellie's uh, hoodie. So how do they do that? They basically use the Weasley twins. To come in, well, choreograph them. What the hell and, are the Weasley twins? Oh, for God's sake! It's Harry Potter, um, okay. and take and and then each one takes that that coat and walks on. Actually, brilliant! I just thought that was fantastic. And the dance was great as well because yes, whether it's yes, they were ducking under the camera. Yeah, uh, secondly, have the Sandy and Ellie dancing with Jack. It's all choreographed. Uh, what um, Edgar Wright calls Texas switches. Sandy yeah. goes behind Matt Smith, loses her hand. Ellie's hiding behind the hand, yeah. comes around the other side and repeat. And special mention to the Steadicam operator, Chris Bain. Um, all four of them working in absolute sync. The effect is intoxicating and all set to the Graham Bond organization's version of Wade in the Water. And the music, exceptional, fitting and completely in keeping with the tone and setting of the film. I still can't listen to Downtown now. I tried listening to the soundtrack. I hear Downtown and I think, God, no, this is terrible. It's not Soho at all. Yeah, fantastic. By including Rita Tushingham and Diana Rigg in the cast and referencing Scylla Black, Sandy Shaw and Petula Clark in the songs, Edgar Wright asks a, a, a side question. How close were all five from becoming part of the sex trade like Sandy Collins? It's a scary thought. We might have been, mm. well, maybe Scylla Black, but so we we might have been Sean of uh, Sandy Shaw and Petula Clark and Rita Tushingham and Dinah Rick. Scylla Black is... in the sex trade wouldn't have been a problem. <laughs> God's sake. Oh, good grief. <sighs> oh, just when you think he can't go any lower. 
Oh, he opens another door and descends another flight of stairs. Yeah. I love the ending. Ellie knows the truth about Sandy, but also that it could have been so different for a talented singer. And the click at the end was so sudden, I actually drummed. I can go on and I'll keep my other reviews short and to the point to make up for the length of this one. Strong female characters and a director on top of his game. And all this from a film that had to go into COVID-related hiatus for six months. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So I've got a whole list of horror films you can now watch. Try Malignant, Neil. I look forward to your views on that. Malignant's um, a lot of fun. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's a comedy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, Phil. yeah, I'll just watch the Edgar Wright film again and ignore you. <laughs> this is a stunning film. Edgar Wright is just such a great director in the way that he makes films. He visually and hourly grabs you and keeps you interested throughout. So the film opens with an amazing, brilliant song and dance number with Thomas and Mackenzie as Ellie. It effortlessly sets up her backstory, her hopes and dreams, and then it takes us away to London. And then comes the really impressive bit. The way that Edgar Wright sets up the past as a halcyon time to live before crashing it all down is just a really fantastic thing to watch. The horror element of the story is slowly ratcheted up to the point that by the final moments, it really is quite jumpy. I loved the camera trickery. Neil's just talked about it. The the scene, the dance with Thomas and Mackenzie and Anna Taylor-Joy where they interchange is amazing where they meet uh, Matt Smith Jack and it's just so fun to watch but actually what's really fun as well is if you can find it on YouTube the footage of them actually doing it which Neil was just talking about is just it's just genius the way that the the cameraman is kind of whirling around them and Thomas and Mackenzie and Anna Taylor-Joy kind of like ducking down and kind of quickly squirreling around to the side to grab into where their necks sort of come in that is almost as fun as the magic that they managed to put up on the screen. I agree, um, yeah. And my final word will just be about Thomas and Mackenzie and Anna Taylor-Joy. Taylor-Joy, I think, is is starting to find herself typecast a little bit in period films and horror films. She certainly looks amazing in sort of period attire and, and what have you, in what was the, the TV show she did, The, the, the Queen's, Queen's Gambit. Uh, and she's in a lot of horror films. She's in a lot of period films. I really hope she's able to break out of that trap because I think she's a quite stunning actress. But the person I want to talk about the most is Thomason McKenzie. And I think we've talked about her before. I think she's an absolute superstar. I don't know how old she is, but she's given us Leave No Trace, which is stunning. Oh, wonderful, um, wonderful film. Jojo Rabbit, where she's also you know one of the best things in there. She's absolutely genius in this the way that she's just so naive and sweet and fresh but also strong and Mm. capable and i'm really looking forward to the power of the dog which i don't know if it's this year or early next year uh first of december on netflix tomorrow oh exciting i'll definitely be watching that then i think she's a brilliant actress i think it's a stunning film to watch yeah great stuff darren are you going to agree with everybody else on this? Um, yeah, <laughs> I absolutely adore <laughs> it. was absolutely magical. And it just had 
there were just so many scenes in it that just had this whimsical quality on it. It was all full of glamour and griminess and just all the elements of the lore of the big city. Just flashback sequences were just this just incredible dreamy spectacle. The sets, the costumes, the music, which um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping there's a, sound, a CD soundtrack of this somewhere because I would absolutely love that. It's absolutely amazing. Just everything about it was incredible. I mean, the... Anna Taylor Joy, I know we've, we've said this already, but there's just, just this like haunting vibe about her. And that, that scene where she takes to the stage and when she like looks into the camera, she's singing downtown and she's just owning it. She's so there, so full of confidence. And then it's just heartbreaking when you see how her talent is torn apart pit by pit and she's sort of like, you know, as her life just sort of goes on this downward spiral. Oh God, it's you know it's 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 incredible, but the the, the film itself is so gorgeous. Again, I'm just going to say how great that Thomas and Mackenzie was in this film as Eloise, because her her character and I really don't need to be patronising here, but she she came across as just this incredibly sweet little uh, you know little girl, and you just wanted to you wanted to get into a movie and be a friend and protect her because. She had so much passion and she was so hard working for this dream. You could tell that she was, you know, she, she'd wanted to, you know, get this chance her whole life. And you could tell that she was, she was really out of her depth from this for, in the big city. Well, she, she was too nice for it all. And you just felt that she was just going to be eaten up by the whole, her fellow students who were, you know, were bullying and making fun of her. And you could see how enticing that she found the, you know, the dreamlike sequences that she was. With, with the Anna Taylor-Joy character. Because not only did you have Anna Taylor-Joy's dream just dissipate, but you saw Eloise had basically herself, you know, she saw, you know, what it did to, you know, what the city did to women like like her. And I've, I've got to say, Eloise is probably one of the most sympathetic characters I've seen in a film in ages. You know, she was abs- absolutely a- amazing. Diana Rigg as well, which I, I believe this was her last role, um, was absolutely epic. I mean, she she did so much charisma, quite scary in places as, as well, and and wicked, and such a such a tough character. But I thought she was absolutely uh, amazing. But the one thing that I think the if it was trying to be a horror film and trying to be scary, I think it failed a little bit in that because the the, the scenes with the ghosts. That's really something that should be scary and make you jump. And, and I didn't feel terrified at all at any time. I do jump really easy. I jump at places where you're not even meant to jump in a film. If somebody walks in a door <laughs> a bit abruptly, I'll jump. You know, when she was being chased by these things, I, I never was sort of tense or anything like that. I think possibly the, the thing that really got me about what was scary in this film is the, stu- the down-to-earth stuff was more scary than the actual supernatural stuff. The Matt Smith character being so domineering and, and aggressive. London just being this really sort of dangerous, seedy place. Those elements to me were what I found disturbing. Male society that was like mistreating these women. They were things that really affected me. And the ghost elements, to, to be honest, kind of just came across as maybe a little pantomime uh, But they were well done. They just didn't really sort of get me on a, a scary, emotional level. Apart from this... I absolutely loved this movie. It's definitely going to be in in my uh, my top films of the year, maybe even my top five when I've had time to think about it. But yeah, I, I thought this was absolutely wonderful. It's interesting you're saying about the horror films, you didn't find it scary. And, and 
Edgar Wright, to me, is someone who understands horror movies. It's not that A24 bollocks that we've been speaking about. Over He's off again. Road. This is a genuinely nasty British movie. It's not perfect, I will give you that, but it is on the right lines. And it draws upon films of the past, but using them in a modern setting. So the classic example would be Roman Polanski's Repulsion, and there the woman is driven insane and in that one location that she's in. A lot of that comes through and is referenced in Last Night in, in Soho. But it puts its scares and its story first. Now, you know, I go on about A24, and um, what I feel about A24 and that sort of film is they put metaphor first and story second. This reverses that. What Wright understands is you put your story first. This is why Hammer works so well. But what is that metaphor, even though it's in second place? You know, it's saying we can be in love with the past, but must always be aware of its dangers. As I was watching this, I was remembering, you know, first couple of times I went to London in the 70s, grim probably the 50s for you it's that feeling that when you wandered off the tourist areas it had that element of danger that feeling of unease about it and i thought this film perfectly captured that not only through the film but at the end of the film those wonderful still images that edgar wright took during the covid lockdown and put into the end credits i mm. thought that was really really good edgar wright is certainly one of the most interesting british directors at the moment and he uses his skill as a director. He's never flashy. And I'm fascinated to listen to some of the things that you guys have said about the way the dance sequences are done. I didn't realize that. I thought he'd actually done it with trick photography. Jump cuts and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. To, to realize he was doing it by having the actresses switch. While we're talking of the stars and so forth, Phil, I want to go back to your point, but Anna Taylor-Joy. I think it's interesting for an actor actress who wants to be a horror star so many of them seem to do that for the first couple of films then almost throw the you know the horror genre into the bin but she seems to embrace it and i think she does really well and with the best will in the world she is a rather odd looking actress but in a nice way i don't mean that in a nasty way so you know when she's in films like the witch which i did hate but she was really good in it and in this I think she makes a really marvellous impression. Matt Smith on fine, sleazy form. Thomasin McKenzie, we've already said, is absolutely excellent. I had to research after. I didn't realise it was the actress that was in Jojo Rabbit. Let's talk about Diana Rigg. Now, for her last film, this is absolutely incredible. I do not want to go into spoiler territory on this because I think this is a film that is well worth discovering. I think it is one of these films that as time passes will end up on various channels and people will rediscover it without knowing the twists and just talk about how great this movie is. I think all of that is wonderful. I think the, the performances are great. Edgar Wright is great. My only complaint is he's trying to make a sense of those Italian horror movies from the late 70s, early 80s, films like Suspiria comes to mind. Um, but he plays it out too much. There's a point where he should take his foot off the gas and he just keeps doing it. He just keeps that pressure on in the last half hour. And perhaps that should have been cut down a little bit. And I do think then he plays it one twist too many. Now, that's a minor aside. This is a great British horror movie. 
It's got a killer soundtrack. Yeah, I think all of his films have got a killer soundtrack, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. This, yeah, but yeah. this one was great. I mean, it's got three solo black tracks on it. You can't get better than that. <laughs> God's <film>. sake! Um, <laughs> so you know, as horror movies go, this is how you should be making horror movies today. So yeah, it's a great film. Edgar Wright, another winner. Graham. Oh, yeah. What a great horror film. And that's something I don't say often. <laughs> I really loved it, the overall feel of this movie. Uh, with the jump to the, to the 60s and back to the present time, really played well. I mean, the, as we've all said, the two leads are excellent. I think Matt Smith, Terrence Stamp, Diana Rigg, the supporting cast, lend a bit of weight to this movie. And and I know the Atmoflix horror mafia will be telling you that this is a light-hearted musical or some <laughs> other such nonsense. But for normal people who have not had their reactions... I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't believe I said that. Yeah, well, yes, <laughs> I think you've said it's a, a musical. Just because we haven't had years of hardcore abuse to dull our sense of horror, <laughs> you know, this is full of creepy ghosts, gore, uh, and spectral hand breaking through the floorboards. I nearly hit the bloody ceiling when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it scared the shit out of me. Uh, mission accomplished, Mr. Wright. Uh, yeah, it's a blast. It's an absolute blast. Very scary. Great fun. Wright's direction was perfect. Soundtrack's exceptional. Cinematography was clear and efficient. I really liked it. Uh, I really loved the switch between night and day, and some of the scenes were shot um, during the height of the pandemic last year. So, and this with the streets of Soho empty and foreboding. Yeah, if you want a really good scary movie or you're just constipated, then this is the movie for you. <laughs> So that was Last Night in Soho. I loved it. It's currently playing in cinemas and should be on pay-per-view just in time for Christmas. From one idiosyncratic director, let's turn to another. Wes Anderson and his latest film, The French Dispatch. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. Decent people. It's supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the best expatriate journalists of his time. Berenson, Sazerac, Kremens, Roebuck Wright. These were his people. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. We take as the subject of tonight's lecture, Mr. Moses Rosenthal. Certainly the loudest autistic voice of his rowdy generation. Simone Naked Cell Block J Hobby Room. I want to buy it. It's not for sale. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes. In short, the picture was a sensation. A message from the foreman. One hour to press. You're fired. Really? Don't cry in my office. In the early 1960s, French dispatch editor Arthur Howitzer Jr., played by Bill Murray, dies suddenly. As part of his will, only one more edition of the paper will be published and feature three stories from past editions. Jeff, I know you're a huge fan of Wes Anderson's work. Is this one of his best? (laughs) (laughs) Neil, I know you're trying to get a rise out of me. I do like Anderson's work. The misconception has grown up amongst you guys because I call out the Isle of Dogs for the racist tribe that it is. 
<laughs> you know, it's it's just not woke enough for me. <laughs> yeah. God. His live action work is engrossing and fun. However, and I have to say this, I'm sorry, listeners, I wasn't afforded a chance to see this movie as much as I tried. Now, there's two reasons for that. One, it's being shown in an elitist cinema near me. <laughs> and as a poor pensioner, who, oh, having to poor. feed myself from food banks and the wife and, <laughs> yeah. and watching out for that heating bill, I could not afford the £50 a ticket it would have cost me to have watched this in the cinema. It wasn't 50 quid. Uh, it was. It, it was, uh, it was, it well, was 20 quid, and that included my pint of cider. £20. You could feed a family of four for two months on that. No, you can't. In certain parts, in certain parts of Wales. Uh, <laughs> which, and this brings me to reason two. As an elitist cinema... It is clear that the middle classes have taken in Wes Anderson as their poster boy. Clearly, no room for a poor Welsh boy there. Hopefully, when it comes out on discounted physical media, I will be able to see the film then. And I am looking forward to it. Until that time, I guess I'll just have to bask in the warmth of your reviews. Except Neil, who is a Tory donor, able to get one of those PPE contracts, which funded his trip <laughs> to the elitist cinema. Well, Jeff, as you're sitting in the fourth bedroom of your your detached house, um, can we just stop this self-righteous posturing? Over to someone who could be bothered to see it. Darren. I had no problem seeing this as it was in Cineworld for several weeks, so I, I easily found it. This is one of those times when I'm actually glad I'm not a professional film critic because this is the sort of film I really find it hard to come up with what to say beyond... It being that this is a Wes, and- Wes Anderson film. Being Wes Anderson, and if you like Wes Anderson, you'll probably love it. And if you don't like him and think he's a lot of tribe, then you'll hate it. I put Wes Anderson in the same bracket as Monty Python or The Prisoner or even Vic Reeves, where you, if you either get his humour and you're in tune with what it is that he's doing, or you don't. And if you... If you don't, then there's absolutely no explanation of why his films uh, are good and funny. And if you do find them great, then you've really no explanation necessary. I've actually been quite late to the uh, Wes Anderson party. And I've got to say, I absolutely adore his films. To me, they always look like um, a graphic novel come to life. They're so cartoony Mm. and vibrant and brilliant. They look absolutely incredible. The stories are absolutely wacky and crazy and out there. And the the casts always give performances which are completely over the top. And unlike anything that you see them doing in any other movies. And they they just, to me, seem really fun and silly. And people just being these really over the top, bizarre characters and and to me there's just there's always that little undercurrent that everyone who's working on these films is absolutely enjoying what they're doing as if they've been given the Mm. chance to do something really really different i've got to say that these three stories each one of them as i was watching i i i think it took a little time for me to get into but once they did once the story really hit i absolutely loved them They, they, they were all really funny bizarre wacky way out humor they all had that sort of like this really undercurrent of violence in them. And I thought there was an absolute joy about them. 
and and it's the sort of film that I I don't want to have to analyze or read up on or think too much of because the thing about these films is I get the impression that there's some really great themes at work going on and ideas and that there are some references to stuff which for a person like me who is not that literary would probably absolutely go way over my head but to, you know to to me it, it doesn't matter because because what i get out of these films is that they are funny and really wild and anarchic and absolute bonkers and insane and there's also got like a real punk rock rebellion to them i i think they're absolutely you know wonderful and i don't really want to have to dive into the any intellectualism to to enjoy them with with hollywood the, the way it is nowadays for someone to actually make films like these, which are so bizarre and just so... You can tell that this is... He's gone in there and he's been given free range somehow to make these sort of movies. I mean, I can't imagine that any Hollywood execs will be sat there and he's saying, this is what my film is going to be and them sort of like sort of going along with this. The fact that someone like him manages to make movies like this still sort of gives you hope for, you know, the creativity in the film industry and i absolutely you know absolutely adore these films okay so here's a question i'll throw it to everybody is wes anderson the woody allen of this generation how so what do you mean how's he a woody allen? so woody allen is an auteur would make the films that he wanted to make and got great acclaim for them obviously that time has now passed for him do you think wes anderson has picked up that mantle Certainly in his ability to be able to make what he wants and not have any interference. I think, yes, possibly. I don't know where he gets the money from, but I cannot see one frame in a Wes Anderson film that's been influenced by anybody other than Wes Anderson. I think from that point of view, yes, he is like the Woody Allen of the 70s. Yeah, I get where Jeff's coming from a bit on that because... It's that sort of thing that if you watched two minutes of a Wes Anderson movie and weren't told who directed it, you'd be you'd know exactly what you were, you know, that it was a Wes Anderson film. In fact, I go further. I think there are sort of certain scenes where if you just took a still of it and just showed that you will be able to tell, yeah, that's a Wes Anderson movie, just by how the actor is portraying with camera and just the setting and everything. I, I, so I get, and Woody Allen was kind of like that as well. Uh, so, so yeah, I can see where you're coming from on that. Yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, the Woody Allen of the 70s and 80s was a unique beast. You know, those films were absolutely incredible, artistic, and you could almost, you, you look at Manhattan, for example, just phenomenal stardust memories amid someone like sex comedy were incredible features. I just think that Wes Anderson has now picked up that mantle and does those sort of films. I think Isle of Dogs for me was a backward step for him, but I think, you know, Grand Budapest Hotel uh, and those sort of films are just incredible. Okay. Graham. Well, I'm going to repeat something that Darren just said. I mean, this film is so out there. I, I really don't have the language to review it. Instead, <laughs> instead, I'll just say there is one scene in this movie where Arthur Howitzer, played by Bill Murray, goes to Lucinda Kremitz's office to ask her for her latest article for the magazine. It's just one, it's about like a 10-second scene. And there's this single shot 
with absolutely no camera moves, Murray opens the door on the far right of the screen and leans in. And between him and Kremens is a bookcase, a window, and then Kremens sitting at her desk. Everything along that wall in her office is perfectly symmetrical. The door, the bookcase, the window, and the desk are all exactly the same width. And these four items fill the screen from edge to edge. All the objects are in bright yellow. And in the foreground is a yellow plate with four pieces of toast on it. Each piece of toast is at a 45 degree angle from the one next to it. And if you like that sort of Wes Anderson stuff, you're going to love this film. If not, don't bother going to see it. You'll just not understand it. I do love this sort of stuff. And I love this film. In a world that's slightly off kilter at the moment, Wes Anderson provides therapeutic symmetry. It's just, Hmm. it's also one of the funniest films I've seen in a long time. Everybody's talked about the three main stories in it. There's a fourth part, which is just the, the introduction of the cycling reporter, as it's called, with Owen Wilson being the funniest I've ever seen Owen Wilson. Mm. And then it moves into the main story, which is the concrete masterpiece with Bianco del Toro is crazy. Lisa Du is naked until the Swinton narrates. And then we move on to the revision and revisions to the manifesto with Francis McDormand and Timothy Chalamet, Chalamet discussing grammatical errors in the bath. And then finally we get to the private dining room where cartoon characters mix with live action in a search for a lost child and the cooking correspondent, wonderfully played by Jeffrey Wright, uh, goes in search of police cuisine. And it is that bonkers. I mean, yep, it's another Wes Anderson movie, brimming with Andersonisms. Just watch it. Your soul needs symmetry. It's phenomenal. And I roared with laughter the whole time in my £25 cinema seat. Yeah. <laughs> well worth it. It was worth yeah, it. And the fact that I, I, got, didn't you? I got a beer and a cup of tea from a 25 quid. So. Phil, do you agree with what uh, Graham's saying here? That's a, that's a I mean, question. This is me, right? I mean, there, there should be absolutely <laughs> no surprise from any of you that I think this is a great movie, right? Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> like, we spent however long we spent talking about Wes Anderson films a couple of years ago or whenever it was, just as Graham said he couldn't be objective for Dune, I cannot be objective for Wes Anderson movie. I pretty much think the guy can do no wrong. I adore his films. They're idiosyncratic. This is the most Wes Anderson-y film that a (laughs) Wes Anderson film can be. In the parlance of Spinal Tap, it is dialed up to 11. So you've got symmetrical frame shots, you've got title cards, chapters, montages of dysfunctional families. You've got children who behave like adults. You've got distinctive camera movements, his his distinctive language and cadence of speech, his repertoire of actors who, frankly, make it a star-studded cast. And they turn up to do anything. I mean, Shersha Ronan was in it for what? Like two lines? Edward Norton was probably the same. Yeah. Um, for Wes Anderson fans, which I am unashamedly one, it's utter perfection. All the stories are nuanced in their own way. They contain beats that fans will find references to in his other films. The set design and costume feature the kind of attention to detail would make me weep if I had the job of keeping it in order. Graham's alluded to that just now. Just imagine being responsible for that. 
setting it's, those pieces of toast at the right <laughs> angle. I mean, it's yeah. just like incredible. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's full of witty and wry humour. And, and one of the things, if we're going to be deep about it, it's, so it acts, the film itself acts as a love letter and eulogy to journalism. But also, I kind of felt that it was the same thing to Anderson's inimitable style. Because whilst, you know, overtly it's about journalism and about investigative investigative journalism, it's also just him kind of riffing on everything he's done before. If you look at each of the sort of story segments, you'll find themes and references to his other films. So some of the sets will be very reminiscent of The Life Aquatic some of the stories are reminiscent of Grand Budapest Hotel. And, you know, you see all these sorts of references and he's sort of self-referencing other things that he's done. I guess that will fuel the argument of he just makes the same kind of films over and over. But I'm happy with that. And there are some stunning performances. Um, my favourites were Benicio Del Toro as the crazy artist, Lea Sadu as the uh, often naked prison guard, and Jeffrey Wright, I think, probably wins as as the the guy who was interested in uh, prison food, uh, not prison food, police food. Like, and how crazy an idea for a story is that? And we never see it. We never see any police food. We see the chef. We see all the craziness that goes around. They say we need police food, but we never actually see it. It's just yeah. bonkers. Um, on the note of uh, what cinema you went to see and all the rest of it, my cine world, neither of my nearest cine worlds had this. I did have to go and travel to a view, but I was very, like, I was fine with that. I'm, I'll go and travel. I'll go and pay £25 at an elite cinema if that means I get to watch the Wes Anderson film. It was utter perfection. Well, yeah, I, I would have gone to a view to, to to have watched it, but I'm not paying £25 in an elitist cinema. And speaking of elitist, Neil, your review. <laughs> So when I I, I went to um, a new Tivoli cinema, which has opened in Cheltenham, and the senior ticket, which starts at the age of 60, well, I got a senior ticket, um, was £15, which isn't that much. It's more than Cineworld, I admit. And, of course, I had to buy a pint of uh, cider because it was there. It was nice. Why is um, that because so, you're old? Yeah. It's the law, Jeff. You know this. It's the law. It was. It was a very nice pint of cider. So when I came out, I texted Wes Anderson and out Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson himself, pouring all his usual style into every single corner of the screen. Absolute delight. Fantastic. I almost started clapping yes. at the end, yes. except, except I was the only one in that cinema and it would have looked weird. I, because probably because it's a bit expensive. I, I walked home about two miles with a silly grin on my face. It was that good. I'm going to echo exactly what uh, Phil has just said, that the first story or the, the first main story, the concrete masterpiece with Lea Sadu and Benicio del Toro is utterly insane and so fantastic. And the wonderful Jeffrey Wright in the fri- private dining room. I've just, I'm smiling now remembering the story. I don't know how much more I can add without repeating everyone else except for Jeff who couldn't be bothered. Wes Anderson can tell a simple story and make it rich with detail and unique design palette of his own. And I loved it. What with this and Dune and Last Night in Soho, we have been richly rewarded this month. What was the French Dispatch? I'm sure it was a great movie and I'd love to see it. Um, uh, uh, when it comes on video on demand, I'll watch it. We have one more review to go. 
And let's go over. Oh, it's Marvel. How fantastic. Uh, Eternals. <laughs> right. This is starting to become a tradition. Our last movie review being a superhero one. We're Eternals. We came here 7,000 years ago to protect humans from the deviants. Why didn't you guys help fight Thanos? Or any war, or all the other terrible things throughout history. We were instructed not to interfere in any human conflicts unless deviants are involved. By who? We need to find the others. In 5000 BC, the Eternals, a very special immortal group of superheroes, are sent to Earth to destroy the invading Deviants. The last of the Deviants is killed off in the 16th century and the Eternals split up going to different parts of the globe while they await the spaceship from their home world. With the Deviants gone, they are forbidden from helping humans with their own conflicts. The status quo is maintained for 500 years up to the modern day. Then a new Deviant emerges and the Eternals must join forces again. Darren, you're as big a superhero fan as I am. What did you think of Eternals? Well, this was a rare Marvel movie for me because it was based on characters and a property that I am absolutely totally unfamiliar with. I've never read an issue of any of the Eternals comics. I never basically came across them. Even on the many other titles that I used to read on a regular basis, they never showed up on there as guest stars. So I'm, I've I've never come across them at all in the past. And I've got to say, the less than stellar reviews which have been banded around about this film and all these accusations that it's long and boring. I, I went into this with a lot of tre- trepidation because I'm a big Marvel fan and I thought that this might be one where I'm really disappointed. And I've got to say, I, I liked it. I wouldn't say I absolutely loved it, but I really admired it. It felt refreshingly different from other Marvel movies. There was more of a relaxed, subtle tone to it. And it was different. I know for for a while people have been saying that Marvel had become um, cutty-cutter, that they're all the same. And then you had a film which was trying to do something different, that looked different, that had a different tone. And it was ambitious. I mean, you could, you know, it was trying to introduce us to a large cast of characters. You know, you you forget that the, uh, the original characters all had a film of their own before they were thrust together in the Avengers. This one tried to do the work of, of sort of all those movies beforehand and bring them together in, in one film. And it had a really vast backstory they tried to introduce you to. And I think it did it really well. I, I, I do, I will admit that the uh, afterwards, the characters' names, most of them, I couldn't actually remember. Um, I remembered Sprite, I remembered Cersei, and I remembered um, Angela Jolie as Fina, who, who was probably my favourite character. So maybe you could say that that was showed that there was a little bit too much going on. But, you know, it, you know they they had a lot to do. And, and they sort of, you know, like I say, they tried to, they tried to do something different. And I, I understand why um, a lot of people haven't taken to Eternals and why some people are even angry about it. But to me, it's still a Marvel movie. It still has the fun and the humour of other Marvel movies. It has the banter. And, you know, and 
But the thing about this one is, I think he had a lot more depth about what it means to be a hero, which is something that sort of goes back to the ethos of the Marvel comics originally. Marvel comics were always about sort of characters and making decisions and sort of having to live up to being a hero and having to live up to the implications of their actions. You know, you got that a lot in um, Spider-Man, that sort of quote about the... um, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think that in this one, there was a lot in there which was not black and white because you had an earth-threatening scenario which also had implications that if the characters saved the earth, then they would actually theoretically be dooming other planets from ever existing. And to me, there was like a real sort of, you know, we, you know do you let the Earth die for, for the greater good of the universe? Or do you save the Earth now because these are the people that are living? And I think, that, you know, that there, there was sort of like a, a really interesting dilemma. I, I think, you know, that there, there was a really lot of, of depth in this movie. And, I, and I've, got, I've got to say as, as well, when it came to the, the length of the film, it did feel really long. I when afterwards um, I came out of this, and unlike Dune, I actually felt like I had actually been sat there for a, a long time. But I was never bored because I I liked the um, you know the slow coming together of these characters and learning about them. And I'm curious. About, I don't know if it's just some, maybe some of the film critics that we're getting today. Uh, and, and the film critics that basically sort of you know really sort of make their living on sort of talking about the, the more nerdier movies like this is. At what point did being in a long movie become a bad thing? You know, you know, the, mm. the Godfather is no is a long movie and it feels long. You know, you don't you you know it's not a snappy movie, but it's a great movie. Films like you know, I don't know, The Great Escape, Towering Inferno. These aren't films that go along at a great speed. So you sit there afterwards, you think, oh, wow, I didn't realise I've been sat there almost three hours. But all of a sudden, in recent years, this seems to be sort of said to be a bad thing, that if you sit for a long film, it's got to move fast so that you sort of feel like you're not being there. It's it's just a weird way of looking at these films. And I I found it really refreshing that this was a film that embraced its, um, it wasn't going to rush about you know just to sort of like you know be a blockbuster movie it took its time it didn't introduce you to these characters and when it got to the action i thought the action scenes were, were great you know the um I'm, I'm not that big of a fan of the sort of the sort of films where the, the main villains are unfeeling monsters that you have no personality but this this in this one it worked and also you got the bonus of like you know the superhero battle at the end or which which were done really really well I really, really did enjoy this. I, I will say that as a as a main character, I thought Cersei. I think I think she was overshadowed by some of the more dominant personalities, but she she was a good character. She was a, a good leader to follow through. She was like you know the sort of like the every person that you you follow through a film. But I did think that she was overshadowed by you know stronger personalities in in the film. But all in all, I I re- you know I really. Enjoy this, and I think it's with this and with uh, Shang Chi, it's, it's proof that Marvel they're branching out, they're trying to do different tone film f- films in different settings, and I think that that, that you know to me gives me promise for for the future of the Marvel universe. I, I was really satisfied with with what I saw. I really enjoyed it, and it's not a of all the Marvel movies, it's not one that I think I'll be watching time and time again. 
I will watch it again when it comes on Disney Plus, but it's not something I'm going to sort of like think, oh, I'll watch, you know, Eternals because it is it is a long film. But yeah, I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I don't understand why it's, why it's taken such a hammering from critics, unless it's just a case of this is Marvel's time to be brought down a peg or two. Okay. So you're saying it's different. Phil, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think I agree with almost everything that Darren said. It is a different film to a normal normal Marvel film. I enjoyed my time in the cinema watching it. And I think I you know, talk about this often. So Marvel Phase 4 is the first one that my son and I have been going to the cinema to watch them all. So we've I've, I've watched all the Marvel Phase 4 at the cinema with my son on opening day. And we had a really good conversation about it afterwards where he was you know, really fascinated by the characters and stuff. And we, you know, we had a good chat about, you know, what they could or couldn't have done and where it would go from here. But just like Darren said, I wasn't particularly excited or infused either. It was kind of, it's enjoyable and it promotes a lot of conversation. I'm not sure that I would return to it as many times as I've returned to lots of the other Marvel films. You know, what I kind of remember is I was the only dissenting voice when we discussed Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. And I was really nervous about whether the bits that I found unlikable in that film would be here as well. I thought that the rigidity of the Marvel format helped her because we do have lots and lots of conversations between characters that flesh out their motives and relationships and everything's filmed just as the sun's setting or rising and that sort of magic hour sort of thing. But we also do have a through line to an ending rather than sort of incessant rambling, don't start on me, guys. The grey area between what is good and bad and the relationships in the film, I thought, were the most interesting things. The bit I'll disagree with Darren on is I thought that the fight scenes and the action were pretty vanilla and not that interesting. That you know they're fine. You know, the amount of times that Icarus can shoot lasers out of his eyes and somebody can punch someone, then like them fly off, sort of thing. I wasn't overly excited by that, but I did really enjoy the relationships and the conversations. So. You know, there was that whole thing about they all had different opinions on what the right approach would be, and they talked about them. Darren's just mentioned this, but they didn't just go, oh, I disagree with you, fight, like is, you know, every comment I've ever read pretty much. <laughs> you know, you, you always have to have your heroes fight before they um, actually go, hang on, should we chat about this? You know, they actually had proper grown-up conversations and they disagreed with each other. The best bit, the thing that I loved the most, though, was in that group of characters, there were lots of, of couples and not like necessarily romantic couples, which there were, but just, you know, friendship couples and strong bonds between them. So we had Cersei and Icarus, who were played by Gemma Chan and, and Richard Madden, which were the main crux of the film in terms of what they believed in was like the real driving force behind the film. But then we had um, Fina and Gilgamesh, which were played by Angelina Jolie and Madong Sek, which was kind of like a, a deep sort of friendship and, and platonic love for each other. And I really enjoyed that relationship. I thought that was really special. And there was a, and it sets up a moment in the film that I thought was probably the most you know, heartrending in the film. And then the one that I loved the most was Makari and Druig, which were played by Lauren Ridlov and Barry Keegan. And theirs was, was like two 
20 somethings flirting but for hundreds of years like <laughs> there was a bit where um Barry Keegan's uh, druid sort of met her again for the first time in ages and he kind of came up behind her and just gave her a bit of a nudge with his shoulder and it just felt so perfect and naturalistic and you know like a bit of a spark between them and I thought that all of those things were the best bit of the film it was something that you don't necessarily see in a Marvel film. I'm not convinced this will be as popular as their other movies because it is so different. It's one of these odd things where people go, oh, they always do the same thing. We need to have something different. Oh, but not that different. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It is that kind of odd thing that, you know, it's like the new Ghostbusters film where it's like, you know, oh, we want a new Ghostbusters film, but let's have it be really close in to, to you know, the original Ghostbusters film. And there's people that, are going to you know lap that up as much as they're going to be disappointed that Marvel are being too different here. So yeah, um, it's fine. It's enjoyable. I think it will promote conversations. It's certainly worth watching. We talked about Venom recently and about how I felt that the mid credit scene in Venom was better than the whole of Venom in terms of like plucking <laughs> up interest and stuff. This film does have what I believe are the worst mid and end credit scenes yes. in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm interested in what everyone else thinks about that. But honestly, both the scenes were just terrible. <laughs> and and if they, they neither of them like result in you know forthcoming films, I won't be bothered. I just thought that was a bit of an odd one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I, that's fair. Not only that, the proper ending to the film as well. Sorry, Dan, you were saying. I, I, I will jump in there, actually, because I I have an emotional investment in the made-and-end credits because I started um, with the two characters that it introduced. I, I got really excited, particularly about the last one, because when I go into comics in the 80s for Marvel Comics, those two characters, Star Fox who I'm, I'm told is actually played by some sort of pop star, which went completely over my head. <laughs> um, uh, you know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Just hiding you, hiding your love. Uh, no, honestly, <laughs> I had, I have no idea who, when we said that, that, I have no idea that was. Star Fox and then Black Knight at, at the end, both of them were actually uh, members of the Avengers when I was uh, got into reading Marvel comics. So it was a little bit of a thing for, for me because I got those two references and I got really excited when I started to realise that um, that he was basically the Black Knight at the end. But also that voice that you hear off camera, because it's so quick, I just assumed it was Doctor Strange because Doctor Strange and Black Knight have this uh, sort of, you know, this backstory between. So I just thought, oh, it's, it's Doctor Strange, but they couldn't get him for the film, so we just did his voice. But it's not. It's actually, um, it's actually Blade. So that was, uh, you know, it's yeah. Mahershala Ali. Yes, Mahershala. Yes, yeah, so yeah, so so that got me excited. I would have been even more excited if Blade had actually made an appearance, even a brief one. But yeah, I, I so I personally really like the the uh, end credits, but that's because they they kind of spoke to my um, my the history of my fandom. Excellent. The only reason Blade didn't make an appearance, and I'll, I will talk about these credits in a moment, but uh, is because they haven't sorted his costume out yet. But We'll pass on from Phil talking about that transsexual light film Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, and I'll pick that point up at some point in the future. Yeah, it's transsexual light that film. Uh, over to you, Neil. <laughs> I yeah, I have no idea what he's talking about either. But the um, I'm 
I'm having uh, having to agree with both the uh, both Darren and Phil. I I and I agree on the end the mid credit scene. So 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 you know didn't make any sense or didn't stay for the other one uh then they've just both just said it this was different from the standard marvel fair we have an actual moral dilemma it's an adult question should we let everyone die um for the greater good of the universe i'm not sure why it got such a kicking from the critics and reading some of the critics on uh on rotten tomatoes they really kicked it it's almost as if we've had film upon film of the Marvel formula that works so well, and then something comes along that dares to be slightly different, and they just poured all their vitriol from the previous 20-odd whatever, how many of the uh, the ones they wanted to criticise, um, into this one. It's And it's not nowhere near that bad. Sure, it takes a lot of ex- exposition to get going, the characters are all well defined in a, in and there's a lot of them and they could go outside what is usually a tightly defined framework i enjoyed it because it wasn't the same old marvel same as the phil and darren have just said and uh, any dis- uh, discussion on thanos killing half of every one earth and why the eternals didn't get involved was interesting it becomes an argument for letting everyone die to create more far more, far more life elsewhere i guess it would have been on disney plus as a, a series I, the critics may have allowed it i don't know so marvel try something different use more adult themes and interesting moral question and critics hate it oh well back to the usual marvel formula then because they weren't going to make this mistake again are they we should. Um, it's an interesting point you make there. Do you, if do you it is a this, mistake, do you, do you think this could become like the Hulk, where you need these characters, but you're mm. never going to have them have a standalone film? You'll incorporate them into other films. That is a good point, actually. The Hulk is usually ignored as part of the uh, canon, isn't it? Um, but yeah, it was uh, definitely the second film in the uh, franchise. Yeah. Do you think like some of these characters will pop up in the Guardians? Uh, I, I was wondering because that. they're not part of that sort of um, standard Eternals, wipe them out um, and then put them back in again. Um, and when they re- keep their memories, then yes, they can start influencing the universe, can't they? Maybe Captain Marvel. Um, maybe yeah, as you say, Guardians of the Galaxies. Galaxy. Maybe they'll come every all over the place yeah it'd be interesting okay. to see who do you think then darren will pop up in separate films i personally think i think all of them possibly will at some point i mean at some at some point they will build towards I and mean, this could be sort of like you know six or seven maybe even longer years down the line there will be another sort of infinity war like massive crossover i think these guys will be in the sort of in the cosmo like you say guardians of the galaxy um, because we've not seen the uh, uh, the end of the Celestials, you, you know, but there's a lot more Celestials out there. And to me, the fact that they've sort of started building on those, I think we're going to see they they may well become like the Thanos characters, where um, the other characters have some sort of connection to the Celestials in, in one way or another, and eventually all builds together. And also, as well, the, the thing about the Celestials is they have a um, a connection to um, Galactus, the Fantastic Four villain. When we come up with a Fantastic Four, that opens up the possibility there. I mean, whether or not they do another Eternals film, 
I think they can use the characters, like you say, in the Captain Marvel, uh, you know, they are going more cosmic. So maybe in the Captain Marvel, Guardians of the Galaxy, even if not all of them, you could get sort of like, you know, like um, half of them in one, in one film and half of them in another. I, I'd agree with that. I think that, that um, because we we still haven't got a Fantastic Four story yet, I think, so Thor's gone and joined the Guardians of the Galaxy, and that's uh, one character from one part of the MCU joining another group. And I think we'll see it, some of the Eternals characters pop up in the Fantastic Four uh, as well, and the, the new Avengers or whoever. So I think, yes, there's going to be an awful lot more of the floating characters, just like it is in the comics, you know, where you'll get characters pop up in other people's comics. I think that's how they're going to approach this because they are going very much more cosmic. Um, I think we should get a, a Macari and Druig sitcom like WandaVision. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, that, and that's another good point. They can expand a lot of this stuff out on on TV as well. I must admit, I really enjoyed the first two Hawkeye episodes. I thought they were really, really good. And they've got so much depth and range now in content delivery that they can knock out a, a quick TV show and, and move the characters up that way. One, yeah. poss- one possibility that you've got as well is because... Uh, the Eternals have the, their philosophy on, on being a hero is different from others. And they will basically have sort of like a different sort of agenda. When we are finally get around to having like a new Avengers lineup, you could also always have at some point an Avengers versus Eternals storyline, you know, where where something comes along where the the interests of the Avengers clash with what the Eternals philosophy of that. I mean, you could get a, a big sort of team, um, like, you know, war between the two groups. You know, that's always a possibility as well, because there is a thing that any time any superheroes meet for the first time in Marvel, they always have to have a fight first. Okay. I'm sure, Graham, you're going to uh, stun us now with your Marvel knowledge with your review. Well... I think I'm just going to repeat what everybody else said. I mean, yeah, this was different. Uh, A Marvel movie with a lot of strong characters, a very dark story, uh, betrayal, mental illness, century-spanning abandonment and unrequited love. I was very impressed. Didn't think the fight scenes worked very well, but I did love the interaction between the characters, and that was very Chloe Zhao inspired i think she got that sort of bond between those characters really really well and i think marvel are make, are taking their giga franchise in a slightly more adult direction they're what sorry yeah that's what i would call it a giga franchise it's no longer a franchise it's is absolutely vast now i mean there's nothing to compare to it i still think the you know the there's still epic battles and heroes and villains and cosmic forces and the heroes still face impossible odds that can only be overcome through teamwork, a.k.a. the Avengers, Justice League, Guardians, blah, 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 whatever. So in some ways, it's more of the same. But in others, the story was deeper, and a lot of the movie focused on the interplay between the characters, as as, uh, Phil, Neil, and Darren have said. And all the central actors, I thought, were excellent. Uh, I thought the direction was really interesting, uh, and again, as Phil said, Chloe Zhao it has brought an overall feeling of loss and fracture to this film. 
was really impressed with not only our technical ability, but also the look and feel of the film. To go from Nomadland to this was a massive jump, and she really stuck the superhero landing. Uh, In summary, not what I was expecting, but I enjoyed it and can't wait for what comes next. Yeah, more Marvel. So after Oscar-winning Nomadland, it was a surprise to see Chloe Zhao turn to Marvel movies, or as I like to think of it, the dark side. However, what really surprised me is many of the themes that she's had in Nomadland and her earlier work do reoccur here in a film which is always interesting, if not always successful. You know, themes such as the nature of humanity and community, they're clearly in Eternals. It is a bold movie. What I like about it is you've got all your Marvel films that work at, if you like, ground level. This is working well above that in terms of story because they they don't meet up. You know, these characters have different agendas. It is a film which starts with the words, in the beginning. It has gods, angel protectors and demons. It's full of religious overtones, which is why I see why Graham liked it. <laughs> and <laughs> The original comics were Jack Kirby's work, and he was very much into gods and uh, and that sort of mythos and ancient things because he worked at DC before he went to Marvel, and he was responsible for, you know, the, the godlike characters in the DC universe. So he brought a lot of that across, and that's a very good spot, Jeff, for somebody who's not into the, uh, the whole comic book thing. No, I, I'm a humanist. That's me. And... Um... <laughs> With no humanity. Okay. Absolutely right. Absolutely. And in many ways, you know, uh, Eternals reminds me of Prometheus. It's acting, it's asking very big questions. These are weighty themes. And what I would add is in the first act of this film in particular, and Kit Harrington more than anybody, it's very funny. You know, you've got this big themes on the one hand and this really earthy humor on the other. And I think it works and blends really well. So all that's really good. But I think where it goes wrong is you've got such a cast of these superhero characters. And so it goes out of a way to make sure they all get equal screen time. And it just slows the pace of this film down. Something dreadful. I mean, you know, we talk about Eastwood and Crime Macho, and this is the same thing. Just needs an editor going in there. But I was entertained throughout. I felt the ending was too open. And, you know, the ending and then the two credit sequences, for me, uh, a Marvel virgin, really, um, I felt that uh, it just... I had to come home and read about everything that happened at the end of that film. Surely it should work for me in the cinema that I can leave the film and have an understanding of it. You know, all this like, oh, that's Blade talking off screen. What a load of bollocks and pretentious bollocks at that well most Uh, ordinary people just leave at the end of the film they don't sit through for the credits and that's what i like about this film it does make you go away and think i i I think it is flawed i think it's over long but i think it raises a lot of questions that are interesting i'm not a fan of the marvel universe as much as i hate to use that word but yeah i i thought this was okay so i would say this film certainly surprised me but does it make it into our top film of the month this time around? 
So taking that cue, what has everyone selected for their film of the month? Neil? For me, Last Night in Soho, narrowly from the French Dispatch in Dune. Well, Dune, obviously, but also the French Dispatch in Last <laughs> oh, Night in Soho. For sake, it's picking one film. Uh, for me, <laughs> for me, they are, they're, they're picked a film, but I think it's, it's, it is really important to say, we, so we've had two really amazing months, haven't we? Last month yes. this year. Yeah. This month, there are three phenomenal films and I think it, like, yeah, it just comes down to which of those three is your favourite. Uh, Dune for me, then. Okay. Oh, I'm going to go with Last Night in Soho, but uh, any other month it could have been uh, one of the other two beauties we saw this month. And mm. Phil, what's your favourite, as if we need to ask? <laughs> we need to ask. Yeah, it's the French Dispatch for me, guys. Yeah, so tied this month then. Last Night in Soho. But really, the winner's Dean. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Jolly good. Thank you. Jolly well, good. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Graham, Con, you can tell me as a mate, is Frank really coming to the UK this month? I mean, is that a wise idea with everything going on with COVID? <laughs> well, he's passing through the UK, so he'll probably be passing through you as well. Please sell tickets for that one. I'll take I want it. Front I'll row. Watch. <laughs> Front row. I'll bring my camera. And to everyone else, thank you for listening and goodbye. Thanks.